0: Well, good morning once again. Can I have you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 15? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we have come to chapter 15. And uh, as we open our study in John 15, we are roughly 11 hours from the cross. It was probably somewhere between 10 and 11 o'clock in the evening. The Gospels record that Jesus would be crucified by 9 a.m. the next morning. At this point, Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room where they had observed the Passover together. And then making their way through the streets of Jerusalem and eventually the temple area, the temple courts. They have now come to two large bronze doors that led out of the city. These doors were made of bronze, but in the light of the sun, they looked like shimmering gold, which is why they were together called the Golden Gate. This gate was the one they needed to exit through to get to the Mount of Olives, and in particular to a certain garden located on that mount, the the, uh, Garden of Gethsemane. It would be in this garden that Jesus would spend several hours in prayer before being arrested and taken to uh, Annas, the official Jewish high priest, where he would be arraigned before a quickly assembled gathering of of the Jewish high council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. As they come to the Golden Gate, also known as the Eastern Gate, Jesus stops, and in the light of the full moon, Passover always took place during the full moon. He draws their attention to the grape vines that were carved into these two bronze doors. Now. I believe it was then that Jesus launched into this teaching that we call the vine and branches discourse. Let's just read uh, first of all verse one. Where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse eight By this my father is glorified that you bear. Much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As we said last time, the whole point of Christianity or the Christian life is that we bear fruit. In this section, Jesus uses one of the many illustrations that he chose to communicate uh, spiritual truth using earthly stories. That's what a parable is. Uh, it simply means to take an earthly story and lay it alongside a spiritual principle. The story helps illuminate. The uh, principle and uh, Jesus had many of these simple illustrations taken from everyday life things that they were very very familiar with and one of those was now he's using uh, the illustration of a grapevine and its branches and fruit something they were very familiar with Uh, The cultivation and care of grapevines. They did that all the time And uh, since the whole goal of agriculture is to bear fruit or you know, what's the point? Uh, something, something the disciples knew only too well. He uses this illustration to drive home the importance of bearing fruit in our relationship with Him. Very important point. In fact, fruit bearing is such an important point in the Christian life that Jesus goes as far as to say that the only way we know that we're true disciples of His, truly saved, is that we bear fruit. Verse 8, but there's other places, Matthew 12, 33. In various places, He said, you will know them by their fruit, Right? This is how Jesus of the Father is glorified uh, in our lives, and so this is why the Father's great desire is that we bear much fruit. But guys, here is the all-important lesson about fruit bearing that you must understand. Miss this, you're not only going to miss the point of the point of this series, you're going to miss the whole point of your Christianity. Okay. The fruit that is produced in nature is for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of the of the fruit tree or Or grapevine the same is true with the spiritual fruit produced in the Christian's life it isn't for our benefit if we produce that fruit it is for the benefit of others remember John 15 is the continuation of the discourse Jesus began in the upper room as recorded in chapter 13 you remember it began with a lesson in servitude that Jesus endeavored to teach his disciples after they had refused to wash each other's feet. You remember, in that culture, they walked on dirt roads with open sandals. And so when you got to a place, especially if you're going to have something to eat with this family or in this house, it was customary for the uh, host to uh, either provide a servant that could wash guests' feet, or uh, if he was too poor to have a servant, then it was up to the host to wash his guests' feet, or, at very least, uh, if it was a group of guests, one of them would volunteer to wash one another's feet. Washing of feet in that culture was the lowliest task usually given to the lowliest servant. It was not something that, you know, was very humbling, very humbling. And so uh, often um, nobody wanted to wash each other's feet. Jesus had been t- teaching these men for three and a half years. Um, Lessons about serving others. And now he gets to the upper room. He reclines at the table and waits to see if one of them is going to volunteer to wash the other's feet. Has it sunk in? Has anything I said registered with these guys? Well, they weren't going to wash each other's feet because we learned from the other gospels. They were busy arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Great people don't wash feet, right? Nobody's washed feet. I'm somebody great. I'm going to be a prime minister in the kingdom. They were all thinking, right? But Jesus just sat there and listened to this for a while. Then he quietly got up, walked over to the table, took a pitcher of water, poured some into a basin, girded a towel around his waist and began to wash his disciples' feet. Of course, I wasn't there. But I would imagine you had 12 of the most red-faced guys in the world. John 13, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. That you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who was sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And, guys, I believe this is the context of the vine and branches discourse bearing the fruit of sacrificial love by dying to self to serve others. Now, Jesus, of course, was the ultimate example of sacrificial love, which he would demonstrate in just a few hours, when he willingly laid down his life on Calvary's cross to pay for our sins, that we could be saved and have eternal life. In that regard, sacrificial love, or in other words, God's love, is the greatest fruit, the greatest fruit that can be produced in the Christian life, as Paul picked up on this in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 3, he said that love, agape, well, it leads the list of the fruit of the Spirit, right? But this is the truth, guys. If you don't, if you don't get this, you're not going to really get the, the, the full impact of what he's teaching here. This is the truth that Jesus went on to proclaim categorically when he said in the climax of this discourse he wasn't done after chapter 15 but this was the climax of this discourse John 15 12 this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends in that regard when the fruit of love is produced in our lives It benefits others whom we love by dying to self to serve. But here's the problem with teaching the subject of fruit bearing from a biblical standpoint. Here's the problem with teaching the subject of fruit bearing to those who fill fill Christian churches today, who fill them at this very moment across our country. When they hear that the goal of the Christian life is to bear fruit, They have a different way of defining fruit and applying it into their lives. When most of the people coming to church today, especially the younger generation, when they hear that God wants to produce fruit in their lives, they immediately interpret that to mean that God wants to produce things in their lives that will listen, bless them and not not others. You see, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, A lot of Christians there are defining fruit as the fruit of self-esteem, the fruit of self-worth and self-fulfillment. Many others define it as the fruit of happiness or the fruit of mental health or even the fruit of prosperity, success, and or physical healing. In other words, in the minds of many professing Christians today, God exists to serve them, to give to them, in short, to bless them. They don't look at the fruit that God wants to bear in their lives, the fruit of this whole topic, the subject, John 15, especially verses 1 to 8. They don't look at the fruit that God wants to bear in their lives as the fruit of self-denial. As you compare it to what Jesus said earlier in his ministry, if you want to be my disciple, you have to what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. They don't see it that way. They don't see the fruit that Jesus is talking about and the Father wants to produce as the fruit of self-denial, the fruit of serving others. Or as being the fruit of bless- being a blessing to others, or in especially the fruit of living a life that glorifies God. No, no, they don't, they don't hear it that way. They don't, they don't feel it that way. Their whole focus is on what God is going to do for them, what he's going to give them. In other words... Their brand of Christianity is completely self focused and self centered. In that regard, their Christianity is turned inward instead of upward and outward. Remember, last time we focused on Jesus' statement in verse 1 where he said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And as the vine dresser, what the Father desires from our lives as His children is that we bear, verse 8, fruit, more fruit, Ultimately, much fruit. Now, we're reviewing from last time a little bit, but to accomplish this work, the Father carefully prunes the Christian, all of us who are Christians, trimming away sins, distractions, hindrances, and of course, evil habits, in order to allow the Christian to achieve, listen, maximum fruit-bearing capacity. Because the whole goal of the Christian life is to bear fruit. One of the most effective ways the Father prunes a Christian's life is with troubles, trials, and even by allowing pain and suffering to touch them. You can reread 2 Corinthians chapter 12 again, especially verses 7 to 10, where Paul the Apostle said because of the many revelations God had given him to keep him humble and usable, that he would continue to bear fruit, God allowed a messenger of Satan to buffet him. We don't know exactly what that was, um, there's uh, there's different ideas. I'm not going to get into it this morning. But when Paul said, I prayed three times that this thing would depart from me, but God spoke to me and said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And once Paul realized this was from God, he said, I accepted it. I glory in it. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's important to understand, as we said last time, that the Father prunes our lives Not because he loves to hurt us, but because he loves to grow us so that he can ultimately use us and eternally bless us in heaven. He's all about creating through our lives eternal rewards that we'll enjoy forever. Unfortunately, now here's where we pick it up from last time. Unfortunately, for many professing Christians today, The biblical subject, biblical subject of bearing fruit is as foreign, irrelevant, and meaningless to them as anyone can comprehend. Many of you have heard of George Barna. George Barna is the Christian pollster that interviews Christians on different topics to see where Christians are on various topics that are important to the Christian life. George Barna has identified the reason so many professing Christians, especially younger professing Christians, aren't growing in their faith. In other words, they're not bearing fruit, nor have any desire to serve the Lord in ministry. Why is this? Now, folks, I didn't want to go here. I didn't want to take an entire message to deal with a subject like this. I would rather stay in our verse-by-verse teaching of John 15. And where Jesus taught us about how much the father wants to bear fruit in his kids' lives. But I came across this article, which I'm going to quote some of it to you. And it resonated with me because I've often wondered why so many Christians, especially younger Christians, have no passion for God, really. Uh, are not really consumed with reaching out to the lost, serving God in ministry, Um, why they're not growing in their faith, uh, bearing fruit, and so on. And then I came across this article. Let me read you some of it. Barnes said that the American church has been infected with a pseudo-Christian ideology called moralistic therapeutic deism or for the layperson, a watered-down, feel-good, man-centered, fake view of Christianity. The article says, Barna's organization released a report explaining the beliefs first were identified among teens in the early 2000s. And now as adults, they still embrace these ideas, making MTD, again, moralistic, therapeutic deism, the most popular worldview in the United States today. That's why we have to deal with it. It is the most popular worldview especially in churches, of any worldview today. The report continued, nearly 4 in 10 adults, 38% of the people that embrace this are more likely to embrace elements of MTD than other popular worldviews, such as biblical theism, secular humanism, postmodernism, nihilism, Marxism, uh, and its its offshoot, critical race theory, which we're hearing an awful lot about lately, and even Eastern mysticism. The report said three out of four accepting MTD, however, still claim to be Christian. But 95% do not consider obedience to God to be success in the Christian life. 91% do not believe people are born into sin and need salvation through Jesus Christ. 88% 88% say they get most of their moral guidance from outside the Bible. And 76 say good people, quote-unquote, whatever that means, go to heaven because they are, well, good. In this distorted version of Christianity, the emphasis is on self rather than God and on emotion rather than on truth. Those who adopt MTD views believe in the innate uh, goodness of man, the innate kindness of man. Barna explained they view God as a powerful but dispassionate observer who remains detached from human experience unless circumstances make him the solution of last resort. So they don't turn to God first. It's He's a last resort. They believe that life is a, about individual happiness and that action producing positive personal outcomes gives meaning and purpose to life. He added, MTD is more about believing in and promoting the best interests of self based on currently popular cultural thinking. Its proponents are not likely to prioritize knowing, loving, and serving a transcendent God. That's not where they're coming from. Knowing, loving, and serving a transcendent God. Eh, uh, they're not really into that. But they go to church. In their view, the local church exists primarily to offer supportive and upbeat community. It's all about community today, okay? Coming to church, getting to know people, hanging out, having fun, okay? Um, In their view, the local church exists primarily to offer supportive and upbeat community rather than worship, service, holiness, or a genuine relationship with God. And MTD is abundantly... Pluralistic, encouraging people to do whatever works or feels good rather than that which fits with biblical principles. Among those who express MTD beliefs, his report noted, 75% do not believe God is the basis of all truth. 74% believe in karma. 73 are uh, professing Christians who are going to churches. 73% say having some religious faith is more important than what faith. So it doesn't matter what you believe, only that you believe something. Okay, And 71% do not believe the Bible is the true communication from God and that the whole goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The report goes on. The people who hold to, hold to MTD believe that there is no such thing as absolute moral truth and that God allows good people into heaven. Barna concludes by saying, the fact that a greater percentage of people who call themselves Christian draw from moralistic therapeutic deism from than from the Bible says a lot about the state of the Christian church in America in all of its manifestations. Barna warned, simply and objectively stated, Christianity in this nation is rotting from the inside out. End quote. Well, folks, welcome to the Last Days Church. You're seeing Laodicean church in full view now. question is, how do we get here? How do we get here? Well, I think it's safe to say that this kind of thing doesn't spring up overnight, right? It takes years of planting the seeds in people's hearts and minds, watering those seeds for years with godless and unbiblical teachings before the fruit of this kind of ideology comes to fruition. I believe, and I might lose some of you right now, so... Uh, bear with me. I get people walking out of here all the time. All right? Uh, Bear with me. I believe this started with the infiltration of psychology into the Christian church during the first half of the 20th century and with it the teaching of self-esteem. I'm going to devote the rest of this message to this topic. Not that I want to, I feel I need to, okay? Look, all psychology is fundamentally self or man-centered. It starts out with a faulty premise that people are basically good and that the evil they do and the problems they experience in the way of uh, disorders and emotional neuroses can be traced back. Listen, this is what the experts say. can be traced back to some abuse or trauma that they suffered in their youth which has now led to a poor view of self or a low self-esteem in adulthood. This so-called these so-called experts, and aren't we all thankful for the experts? Hasn't the COVID uh, pandemic taught us this? Thank God for the experts. They're always right. They're the oracles of truth that we all should look to, right? Yeah. Um, these so-called experts claim that a poor self-image. Listen. They're quoting, I'm quoting them. is the root cause of all of man's problems. And so in that regard, psychology paints man as a victim. God sees him as a sinner. And even those Christian psychologists who say, oh, we don't believe that. you know, We believe that man is a sinner. Go on to teach that many of his problems can be traced to low self-esteem. Now we all know James Dobson. I like James Dobson. But I think he's more of a psychologist than a biblical teacher. Here's what Jim Dobson said some years ago. He said, I quote, In a real sense, the health of an entire society depends on the ease with which the individual members gain personal acceptance. Thus, whenever the keys to self-esteem are seemingly out of reach for a large percentage of the people... Uh, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and social disorder will certainly occur. End quote. Now Dave Hunt, who's with the Lord now, responded to this years ago. Here's what he said, and I'm quoting, Hatred, violence, and social disorder, rising rather than rising out of willful rebellion and sin, are caused by a lack of self-esteem, which is somehow, quote-unquote, out of reach, For these victims of modern life, instead of pride and the unwillingness to repent of our sin being the great barrier between men and God, we are now being told that such a message is demeaning to our, quote-unquote, authentic personhood. And the paramount need is to build up everyone's self-esteem, end quote. Well, many Christian leaders in the church are sounding just like their humanistic psychologist counterparts in the world. Secular psychotherapist Nathaniel Brandon, in his book, The Psychology of Self and Honoring the Self, views even criminal violence as a psychological problem. I'm quoting him. It's a secular psychotherapist. He said, and I quote, I cannot think of a single psychological problem, from depression to fear of intimacy to criminal violence, that is not traceable to a poor self-concept. Until we are willing to honor self and proudly proclaim our right to do so, we cannot fight for self-esteem and we cannot achieve it, end quote. Well, you remember Robert Shuler, many of you, right? Remember the Crystal Cathedral, that thing built back in the 70s or 80s, I think, right? Um, He had a radio show called The Hour of Power, okay? Okay. Here's what Schiller once said. He said, a person is in hell when he or she has lost their self-esteem. So that's how he defines hell, is having lost your self-esteem. Professing Christian and motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, who I think is also gone, in his book, See You at the Top, that's interesting to me. Uh, Jesus taught in Matthew 20, the greatest in the kingdom will be those at the bottom. You know, you want to be great in the kingdom. Don't seek the Lord over others. Seek to get under as many people to serve them as possible. That's greatness in God's eyes. But Ziegler said, wrote a book. See you at the top, and he had this to say, which echoes, guys, what many authors and speakers in the Christian community are telling people. Let me read it to you. Okay, he said, and I quote: "To build your self-image, make a list of your positive qualities on a card." And clip, keep it close at hand for continued reference. Brag on yourself from time to time. Come on, get in your own corner. You should also set aside a few minutes each day for the sole purpose of deliberately looking yourself in the eye, of course in a mirror. And as you do this, and as you do this, repeat some positive affirmations of things you have done. Use your victory list from step 10. I didn't read the book. Maybe you know what step 10 was all about. Then repeat many of the things other people have said to you or about you that were positive. There are also cases where plastic surgery can be quite helpful in building a positive self-image. I'm just reading what the book says. You know, um, this is especially true in cases of an unusually large or long nose, protruding ears, grossly oversized or undersized breasts, etc., Christian counselor and psychologist Dennis Waitley counsels, and I quote, perhaps the most important key to the permanent enhancement of self-esteem is the practice of what he calls positive self-talk. Now, we used to call it bragging, but they redefined everything. He said, every waking moment, we must feed our self-image positive thoughts about ourselves and our performances so relentlessly and vividly that our self-images are in time molded and modified to conform to new, higher standards." Well, you know what? You don't have to turn to it. You know it. In Luke 18, Jesus talked about a man who had positive self-talk down to a science. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess to the poor. This guy had positive self-talk down to a science, okay? Verse 13, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you this, That man, the tax collector, went to his house justified, whereas the Pharisee was not justified. And Jesus said this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See how the world, its wisdom, and the wisdom of God are often diametrically opposed. James said the wisdom of the world is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Why is it demonic? Because it's all about Satan putting man at the center of everything. The whole teaching on self-esteem goes against everything the New Testament tells us to do with self. Uh, The word esteem, I get this right out of the dictionary, means to regard highly, to value greatly, to have a high opinion of. Therefore, self-esteem would be to regard self highly, to value self greatly, to have a high opinion of yourself. Self-esteem used to be called pride. It stands exactly opposite to what the Bible says we as Christians are to do with self. And the passages are numerous. I'll just give you a few examples. Deny yourself. Crucify yourself. Don't have a high opinion of yourself. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 3? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than yourself. Of course the building of self-esteem would involve working on having a greater view of a greater view of yourself and learning to love yourself more and more. Self-love rather than being a virtue to be pursued is a sinful quality prophesied as being the, one of the characteristics that will characterize the last days church. Isn't that interesting? Again, let me say it again. Self-love, rather than being a virtue, is prophesied in the New Testament as one of the sinful qualities that will characterize the last day's church. I'll just read to you a little bit of 2 Timothy. You can read the whole passage on your own. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be loved. He's talking about church people now. Let's say they're all Christians. But these are people who go to church in the last days. For men will be lovers of themselves, boasters, proud, and he goes on. The whole argument for self-love being taught and practiced in the church is based on a misinterpretation of what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 39, when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Today, that has been twisted to mean, I can't really love my neighbor or anyone else until I first learn to love myself. Maybe you've heard that. It's everywhere. That interpretation and teaching didn't get started with a person who loved God, who was a spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ. It actually got started 75 years ago in the church with an atheistic psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm tried to justify his humanistic view of self-love as biblical. He wanted to expand his practice. He was looking at the Christian community. He wanted to get a lot of Christians, uh, you know, into his practice. And so to justify his humanistic view of self-love, making it sound biblical, he did so by teaching that even Jesus taught we can't love anyone else until we first learn to love ourselves. Therefore, self-love is the greatest love of all. So taught Eric Fromm. And I think Whitney Houston was in there somewhere. (laughs) But guys, that's not what Jesus said. Not at all. He, He didn't say, learn to love yourself before you can love others. He said, love others as you love yourself. This was affirmed by Paul in Ephesians 5, right? When he said... Love others as you love yourself, picking up on what Jesus said. He said, no one ever hated themselves. How do we know that? Because we all take such good care of ourselves. We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we give ourselves shelter. This is what Jesus meant when he said, love others as you love yourself. We already love ourselves. It's not that we have to learn to love ourselves first and then we can love others. No, no, we already love ourselves. We know that because we take good care of ourselves. Again, feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, uh, house our, our, our bodies, and so on. And what Jesus is saying and Paul is affirming is, look, now love others that way. Feed the poor. Give them clothes to wear. If you can help provide housing, do it. Take care of others the way you take care of or love yourself. Guys, Self-love doesn't help us love others. It hinders us from truly loving others. The problem for Christians in loving others isn't a lack of self-love. It's an abundance of self-love. In other words, we spend so much time loving ourselves, at the end of the day, we don't have any time or desire left to love anybody else. Now, at this point, many would interpret by, interrupt by saying, that's not true. Not everybody loves themselves. There's a lot of people who hate themselves. And again, Ephesians 5.29, Paul says, no one ever hated themselves. Even the teenager who looks, somebody said years ago, I've never forgotten this. Even the teenager who looks in the mirror and sees her face covered with acne and cries, you're ugly, I hate you, I hate you. Doesn't really hate herself. How do we know that? What was the last time you hated somebody or were upset with, excuse me, what was the last time you were upset because somebody you hated was ugly? Think about that. If you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. Which is why you're so upset with the way you look. You're upset not because you hate yourself. The very fact that you're upset with the way you look is a manifestation of self-love. I mean, come on, we all know this. Again, I'd destroy your attention to Ephesians 5. You can check what Paul said. Again, no one ever hated themselves. To prove it, Paul the apostles says, you know, we know that. We know that we all love ourselves because we all take very good care of ourselves. Actually, guys, studies have shown that even criminals have a very high, not low view of self. I thought this was interesting. Or in other words, they possess a great deal of self-esteem. See, The, the thinking is, that all the problems in society are, can be traced back to the low self esteem. Criminals. That's just a terrible view of themselves. It's a low self esteem. That's why they, they commit the crimes they commit. But this study says the opposite, right? One author rightly points out, and I quote, Why do thieves steal? They steal because, yes, they want what you have, but why do they want what you have? It's because they, they love themselves and not you. When interviewed, almost always thieves will say that they took what belonged to others because they believed that their victims didn't deserve what they owned. Criminals believed themselves to be much more deserving of the things they stole from others, so much so that they took another person's possessions and felt completely justified in doing so. And so contrary to the theory that most psychologists, both secular and Christian, ascribe to, These criminals, rather than harboring under the stigma of low self-esteem, were actually manifesting or demonstrating a high view of self, or in other words, great self-esteem, great self-love, end quote. Um, This teaching that we all must learn to love ourselves and esteem ourselves, just brag on ourselves, positive self-talk ourselves into a big... Inflated ego, I guess. But this teaching that we all must learn to love ourselves as Christians is, listen, perverting our concept of the cross of Christ and why Jesus died for us, as well as destroying our love for and gratitude toward God for what he has done for us. Robert Schuler, in his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, says, and I quote, "...the death of Christ on the cross is god's price tag on the human soul it means we really are somebodys end quote i don't know about you my bible says that jesus didn't die for somebodys he died for sinners nobody's again shuler said jesus i don't you, maybe you can explain this statement to me jesus knew his worth his success, his success fed his self esteem he suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem, and he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. The cross sanctifies the ego trip, end quote. The words, get thee behind me, Satan, come to mind. Christian psycho- He's not alone. Christian psychologist Bruce Naramore echoes this. What a foundation for self-esteem. The purchase price tells us the value of an object. What a sense of worth and value this imparts. The Son of God considers us of such value that He was willing to give His life for us. Unquote. In other words, what they're saying is you only pay what something is worth. If a car is worth $500, you don't pay 5000 for it, right? The fact that God was willing to pay for us by giving His Son's life for us indicates We must be pretty special. We must be pretty valuable. Only sinful man can look at the cross of Christ and our Savior, beaten, bloody, hanging on that cross, dying that we might live. Only fallen man in his pride and arrogance. Instead of dropping his head in shame and saying, God, thank you for being merciful to me, a sinner would stick his thumbs under his suspenders and go, well, look at Jesus on the cross. I must be pretty special. Look at what I'm worth. That God was willing to die for me. Look, God does ascribe value to us. But not because we are intrinsically worth anything of value. Simply because out of his great divine love, he chooses to ascribe value to us. I've mentioned this before let me say it again under our bed in our bedroom we have two rather kind of long tubs uh, um, Tupperware tubs filled with pictures you know when the kids were little we couldn't afford a camera a video camera and so we just took pictures and of course you know pictures of just family moments you know just just frozen in time special events, family gatherings, right? How special they are, right? Of course, what are pictures? Images stamped on cardboard. Intrinsically, they're not worth anything, right? But if I ever had a fire break out in my house after I got my family to safety and I could come back in and take anything with me, I wouldn't grab for whatever jewelry I used to. I don't have any anymore, but you know, watches or even my computer I'd go into that bed and pull out those bins because to me they're priceless they're priceless I wouldn't give them up for anything those images of my family together the kids growing up special events birthdays graduations images stamped on cardboard are intrinsically worthless but to me they're priceless because I choose to ascribe value to those things. And that's what God does for us. And what, what he does, what he, he, he ascribes value to fallen sinners, not because we are valuable, but simply because he loves us. I give you another quote by one more. Schuller, in his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, this is where he's coming from. He's gone now, but this is where he was coming from. had a lot of followers, by the way. It's messed up a lot of people. He said, and I quote, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven to be more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. We have done a great disservice to people by telling them they're sinners. And they're lost. The classical error of historical Christianity is that we have never st- started with the value of the person, rather, we, has, we have started from the or unworthiness of the sinner. End quote. A lot of these preachers today they would rewrite what Jesus said in, in Luke 18. And instead of the sinner beating himself on the chest, not looking to, toward heaven in shame of his sin, and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What they're preaching from pulpits in America today is that person would stand in front of God erect, proud, pointing a finger in the face of God saying, give to me what I deserve. This is modern Christianity. Christianity. You know, for years, the church has sung John Newton's famous hymn, who himself was a blatant sinner, was said that Newton was a slave trader, uh, sailed, you know, had a ship that he would take um, black Africans from Africa and sell them into slavery, right? And uh, he was quite the sinner. In fact, it was said that Newton swore so much he could make a sailor blush. Uh, Yeah, I get it. But he was dramatically saved. And he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. We all know how it begins. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a what? Wretch like me. See, that's that old worm theology that churches have gotten away from. You can't tell people they're a wretch, a worm. You will destroy their authentic personhood. You're going to cause their self-esteem to crash. So a lot of churches won't sing Amazing Grace anymore or other hymns like it. That's okay. They got new songs. They, they got new tunes that they have substituted. For Amazing Grace, here's, here's the new one. Amazing me how sweet I am. That caused God to save such a worthy and wonderful person such as me. That, that's what the church, many churches are singing. Maybe not exactly that. You know, Spurgeon said it well, and I quote as we close. He said, and I quote, Jesus did not come to save us because we were worth saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone, nor out of any reason that was in us, but solely and only because of reasons which he took from the depths of his own divine love. In due time, he died for those whom he describes as ungodly, applying to them as hopeless an adjective as he could, end quote. Tozer, not read enough today, A.W. Tozer, said, and I quote, until we believe that we are as bad as God says we are, we can never believe that he will do for us what he says he will do. Right here is where popular religion breaks down, end quote. Because modern religion is making man the center of everything. It's not the cross. It's not Jesus Christ. We said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The church has become a glorified self-help program. Not a place where you get to know God in a deeper level. Not in a place where the word of God is read and taught, where it steps on your toes, where it breaks you of your sin, drives you to your knees in confession to make you a, a, a more... Uh, a, a Christian who is closer to God bears more fruit for his glory? It's not the way it is today. Guys, look. And again, we're done. At the heart of all of man's problems is not low self-esteem, but high self-esteem, otherwise known as pride, which is the evil poisonous fruit. We're talking about good fruit in this series. Well, here. got going to take one week to talk about evil poisonous fruit that has filled the world and many churches. This evil poisonous fruit is the teaching of self-love, self-love, and is now embodied in its most recent sibling, moralistic, therapeutic deism. The result is sin and suffering as we see our world being destroyed, not from low self-worth, but from self-love and self-worship run amok. The Bible clearly says, guys, that you and I are responsible for the choices that we make in life. No one else is responsible. I can't claim victim. I can't say, well, I'm doing evil and I'm, I'm ripping off Target and, uh, and other stores because uh, I'm angry inside as I walk out with my 45-inch flat screen TV. This might help. <laughs> Not quite as angry right now. I'll be angry again tomorrow. It's not funny. I'm sorry. It's not funny. This is the fruit of years of self-love preached from pulpits, schools, universities, secular psychologists, Christian psychologists. What do you expect? We taught our kids from the time they were in kindergarten to love themselves. And now we see the fruit. They love themselves more than anybody. But again, the Bible says clearly that you and I are responsible for the choices that we make in life. No one else. We have a free will. And we can exercise that free will to either obey God or disobey God. It's up to us. Guys, man is not an innocent victim inflicted with the disease of low self-esteem, which causes him to act wrongly, corruptly, even violently at times. His problem is rebellion against God. Mark it down. Man's problem is rebellion against God, fueled by pride and selfishness, and he doesn't need years of therapy and recovery to fix it. What he or she needs to do is get on their faces before God, confess that they're a selfish sinner who has always put themselves above everyone else in their marriage, in their family, in their community, and now often in their churches, they need to get on their faces before a holy God and confess their sins, repent of their sins, and they will discover at that moment, God will forgive those selfish sins and begin to give them the grace to be other-centered instead of self-centered. Christ-centeredness is the whole goal of Christianity because Christ-centeredness produces fruit in the Christian life. Guys, the greatest love of all isn't self-love. It's sacrificial love. It's God's love. This is the fruit the Father is looking to bear in the lives of His children. Sacrificial love. That's the fruit. A fruit that isn't for our benefit, but the benefit of others we Come in contact with, right? Although, I will say this and we'll close. The devil's got people pursuing happiness as a direct pursuit, right? That's what moralistic therapeutic deism is. It's the pursuit of happiness. The problem is, people are pursuing happiness as a direct pursuit, and they don't realize, but Jesus told them to start this whole deal in John 13. Remember, he talked about if you, if you, Wash each other's feet. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The Greek is, oh, how happy. Jesus is telling us that the fruit, the byproduct of a life lived to serve others and to glorify God will be happiness. Isn't that something? These folks are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. They're pursuing as direct pursuit, pushing everybody out of the way, making themselves the focus, the center, because they've been taught that's how they're going to have happiness. The devil's laughing his head off because they're falling right into his trap. The devil wants us to hate each other. Anyone who is getting in front of me, i got to fight. After all, I've got to be first. I've got to be in the center. Everything's got a revolver on me if I'm going to have happiness. Look at our nation. Look at our nation. I'm telling you, what we are seeing going on today at its core is, yes, rebellion against God, but the exaltation of self. This is what's happening. And it's not going to get better before it gets worse. Jesus is coming back. He's going to fix this. He is going to fix this world by raining from it, from Jerusalem, over the entire planet. And when he does, it's going to be an incredible dawn of a new day in the history of mankind. We wait for that day. So God willing, next week we'll get back to our study, our series, The Fruit and the Vine, unless Jesus comes back, then he takes over all the teaching and I'm good. With that, okay? All right, guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love. wherewith with you, loved us. And Lord, we are selfish by nature. We Self-love is at the root of all of our problems, Lord, not a lack of self-love. Dear Lord, please work within us. Give us grace to draw close to you, that you would live your life through us. The ultimate, quintessential example of selfless love, selfless love, sacrificial love. Give us grace, Lord, to manifest this fruit, the fruit of sacrificial love in our lives to, all, to those around us. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.